Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. Imagine you're about to go skydiving. I don't know if you would ever go skydiving, but imagine you're ready to go. You've raised the money for the charity because obviously you're only going to do something that insane for charity. You have all the money, you have the plane, you have the pilot, you're on in the jumpsuit, you've got the target to land on, you've got the guy to strap yourself to. There's just one thing missing, the parachute. You were supposed to pick it up down at the airfield, but you forgot it. Now you're 30,000 feet up in the sky, standing on the edge of a plane, ready to jump, but totally and adequately prepared to do so. In our passage today, we're talking about the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. But before adult Jesus comes onto the scene himself, another comes to prepare the way for him. And the big idea is about being prepared for Jesus. As part of humanity, we prepare by believing in him and being saved from our sin. As Christ- and as Christians, we prepare for him by bearing fruit. And we'll see more about this as we go through the passage. But first, let's pray. God, we thank you that even though music isn't working, um, that we can still come and worship you by listening to your word and hearing from your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that's what I pray for. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through your word, Lord, and that you would teach each of us something about who you are, about what you've called us to be as Christians, about what you're doing in our lives and in our world, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your love and for your grace. And just pray that you would help us to listen to you and hear from you and help me to speak your words now. Amen. So we've left the Christmas story behind. We're in Matthew chapter 3 now. Coming is the adult ministry of Jesus. Matthew is interested in Unmasking Majesty, the title of the whole series through the Gospel of Matthew that we're doing here. In showing us who Jesus is, that he's our king. To do so, he's talked about the lineage of Christ, the birth of Christ, the recognition of Jesus' position as king by some wise men, and the opposition to Jesus' kingship by the sitting king, Herod. But now we're going to fast forward a couple of decades and so see the beginning of what's called Jesus' public ministry, which he began at about the age of 30. So we're going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. But before we do, I want to remind you that Matthew likes to emphasise the kingship of Jesus and the fact that Jesus fulfills prophecies in the Old Testament. So we're going to see some of that in this section as well. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, 
but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we're introduced in verse one to this new character, John the Baptist, and he's out preaching in the wilderness of Judea, of Judah, or Judea. So who is he? If you read Luke's gospel, you're introduced to his parents, Elizabeth and Zachariah, who are relatives of Mary. Just like with Mary and Joseph, an angel visited Zachariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist. Zachariah doubted and he was struck dumb until the boy was named John and Zachariah had to write it down because he couldn't speak. So John is a cousin of Jesus because Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. That's in the human sense. How he's related to the picture in terms of his lineage, but there's more to him, and this will be revealed later on, so we'll look at it then. But I want you to notice something. We're not gonna to say too much about it right now, but it's, it's interesting, we'll be looking at it more when we're looking at the temptation of Jesus in chapter four. I just want you to notice where John is. He's in the wilderness. I think it's interesting for two different reasons. The first is that it's not the center of attention. People had to come and find John. I've often wondered why Jesus didn't choose to be born today in the height of television and the internet era, and everyone could see him instantly, and we'd see his miracles on television, we'd see him on Facebook and Instagram and things. But that's not the way God works. God is the center of attention, but he's also the most humble being that ever the wizard was. A lot of God's work is not done in the spotlight. It's done in the background, in the wilderness, if you like. And then second, when we read Genesis chapters one to three, we read about where God wanted us to be with him in the Garden of Eden, a beautiful place, not one that didn't need any work because God had Adam and Eve tend to the garden but one that was beautiful and lush and green and had much fruit and vegetables and was home to every kind of animal. Where John is, where God is at work in this passage, is the complete opposite place, the wilderness. The wilderness is the result of sin. We made the wilderness by sinning and that's where God is at work among the sinners. We take up the scene with John out in the wilderness, I guess somewhere near the River Jordan, which ran the whole way from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. And we get a summary of John's message from Matthew here. He says in verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we say at hand, we don't mean coming soon, like a movie wouldn't be at hand unless it's already out. The word actually means here. It's a way of saying like, this is at hand. My book is at hand. It's right in front of me, I can pick it up. So when John is saying it's the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying the kingdom of God is here. It's within reach, it's not even a stretch. It's at hand already. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. The kingdom was and the kingdom is at hand because the king, Jesus, is at hand. And John also told people to repent. Repent means to feel genuine and real remorse for your sin. And more than that, it's to change our mind about our sin, to desire to stop going in our own way and living a life where sin is at hand, to living a life that desires to do good and to follow Jesus. And how consistent is a message of repentance to the gospel? 
it is still how we come to be part of the family of God or the kingdom of God, as Matthew is telling us today. In further telling us who John is, we get a quote from Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet in the period 740 to 698 BC. So this is about 700 years before Jesus was born. Yet his book of prophecy contains so many foretellings about the life of Jesus and other historic events and things surrounding Jesus's life that modern scholars often can't believe it was written when it was written. But God showed Isaiah some specific things. And one of these specific things is the coming of the one who would announce the Messiah. This quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. It falls in a section of Isaiah that is declaring the comfort of God for the people of Israel after they've been carried off into exile by the Babylonians because of their sin. Chapter 40 is about God coming in comfort, and his coming is preceded by this voice that is crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. And here we have it, a man in the wilderness, and he's crying to the people to prepare the way for the Lord. How? By repenting and by being baptized. Matthew gives us a description of what John wore and what John ate. He wears camel hair clothing and a leather belt, and he eats locusts and honey. What's interesting is that we get this somewhat detailed description of John the Baptist, but we never get a similarly detailed description of Jesus. If Jesus' clothes or what he is eating or his features are described, it's almost always by accident. Like, for example, we know Jesus had a beard because soldiers mocking him pulled on it. We know what he was wearing the day of the crucifixion because they gambled for his clothes. But here we have what John wore and what John ate in a verse by themselves. So there has to be some significance to it, right? There is. The clothes John wore would have deliberately made people think of the prophets of the Old Testament. In a sense, John the Baptist isn't the first prophet of the New Testament where this story is found, but he's the last prophet of the Old Testament period, foretold in Isaiah, as we've already seen. At this point in Jewish history, God has been silent for around 400 years. There were many prophets on the scene before and after the exile, but since Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, God has said nothing. He's prepared his people for the Messiah's coming, and one of the signs would be that Elijah would become before him. And Jesus would later say of John in Matthew 11, verse 17, that he was Elijah who was promised to come. Not a reincarnation or a return to earth of the prophet Elijah, but he came in the spirit, in the ministry of Elijah. And that's what the angel Gabriel told his father in Luke 1, 16 and 17. Significantly then, John the Baptist wore a, cam a camel hair robe and a leather belt. And this is exactly what Elijah wore during his own ministry. And all the Jews would have been aware of this because they would have learned about Elijah. So that John the Baptist, in what he is wearing, is stating that the Elijah that was promised to come before the Messiah, making the way clear for him, is there. So the Messiah is coming. His clothes have even more significance. Monks and nuns often point back to John the Baptist as the inspiration for their own practices, the vow of poverty and all that. And John the Baptist was the one with a message from God, dressed in poor clothing. And this is in contrast to the religious leaders of his day, who 
said they had a message from God and who were dressed in all of Israel's finery so that everyone would know that they were the important people in their society. And then even more than this, John the Baptist's clothes announced not just his humility in contrast to the religious leaders of his day, but also announced the humility of Christ. John is acting like a herald. You may have seen something similar on TV in English period dramas. The town crier comes out and he announces the coming of the Queen. A few years ago, the Windsor town crier um, announced the arrival of President Michael D. Higgins to Windsor Castle, and you can watch that on YouTube. So, like how that guy announced Michael D, John the Baptist was in a similar role, announcing the King, the Messiah coming. But it was a u unusual because it wasn't announcing him in Jerusalem's equivalent of Windsor Castle, but out in the wilderness. Even in his dress, in how he, what he wore, John is declaring the humility of our King. And if our music worked, we would have sung about the humility of our King. <laughs> Well then what about what John ate? What about the locusts and the honey? These aren't linked to Elijah, so are they significant as well? Apart from being food that you could probably find in the wild, locusts often symbolize the armies of opposing nations to Israel. And then of course, Israel is the land that flows with milk and honey. So in eating locusts, it's representative of the Gentile nations, and then eating honey is representative of Israel. And so even by his food, John the Baptist is showing that the gospel is going to join together nations, not two divisions, but one church, which I think is pretty cool. But notice in verse five and six, that people came from the cities out into the wilderness. The wilderness was a dangerous place, but the people were interested in the message that John had to tell them from God. And it sounds like many of them believed, for many were being baptized and confessing their sins. In reading this, I was very challenged. The people went to where God was to be found. I wonder how many of us would do something like that. How many of us would follow God into the wilderness? How many of us would, in searching for God in a deeper relationship with him, go to the difficult places in our search? Jesus did. Not in searching for God, he didn't need to search for God, even though he did withdraw to quiet, desolate, wildernessy places in order to pray during his public ministry. But that's not what I'm talking about. Jesus came to the wilderness and the desolate place in search of us. He left the splendor of heaven. He was born in a barn, basically. Lived a life that was probably always quite near the poverty line. He was despised. He was rejected. He was accused, beaten, and whipped. And he was nailed to a cross and died of suffocation. That's how a crucifixion kills you. Jesus came into the wilderness for us. He was well aware of how hard and how treacherous it would be for him, but he did it anyway. And now these people, they're heading into the wilderness in search for God and his message for them, even though it could be dangerous. What are you willing to do if God calls you to do it? The great thing is if he calls, he's going to go ahead of you, he's going to go with you, and he's going to be your rear guard. He will protect you and love you and empower you. He will show you his love, power, mercy, and grace. And you can know that even in the wilderness, even when we're called to do something scary for God, that he is in control, that he is working all things, good things and bad things, out for the good of those who love him. 
Another thing I found interesting in these two verses, that the people were baptised and confessed their sins. I was thinking about that this week. Why did John encourage people to confess their sins? And who did he encourage them to confess their sins to? We know that it's Jesus alone who can forgive us, and so it's only Jesus that we need to confess our sins to. But this is happening before Jesus died and paid the price and made baptism actually mean something. So this is probably a sign of what was about to happen, pointing to the gospel and what baptism would really mean eventually. But perhaps it was because the Lord couldn't have sin near him. God is holy and sinless. Jesus, of course, lived among sinners and sinful people. But John is announcing the kingdom of God, saying that it's at hand and sin can't be found in the kingdom of God. So he's preparing them for the coming king by having them confess their sins in preparation for Jesus and his coming. And then he's taking their sin with their belief in him. I'm gonna read verses seven to 10 again. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here we have the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are the religious leaders of the day. Pharisees were more like local leaders in the synagogues and Sadducees were in the temple and were linked to the Romans. And we'll learn more about these two groups as we go through the gospel. But it's enough to say that they weren't very good. They didn't represent God well, but they pretended that they did. And that's why John uses the term a brood of vipers. It's an allusion to Satan, the great serpent, the snake as we might say in Ireland. A brood is a family so he is saying that they are the family or the sons of Satan, even though they dress and talk like the servants of God. One of Calvary Limerick's cores is the importance of the Bible. And the reason for this is because we learn from the Bible who God is and to understand God and the heart of God. There are plenty of places out there that use the Bible in the name of God badly. Some of those are very obvious, like the abuses that we hear about in the church. But some are less obvious. Many people use the Bible to preach a moralism, a list of things that you need to do, boxes you need to tick to be a Christian. These can sound like the Bible. They can even quote the Bible. But they're still missing the entire point of the gospel and the fact that we are saved, sustained, sanctified, and glorified by grace through faith. The devil is said to appear as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 4.11. Light meaning wisdom or knowledge, enlightenment. So as Christians, we really need to be people of the book, as the Muslims call us. We need to be knee deep in the Bible. That doesn't make us a Christian. We can be ankle deep, we can be toe deep, or even no deep in the word of God and be a Christian. But we aren't in a good position when it comes to standing against the devil if we go down that road. Ephesians 6 tells us about the armor of God and the only weapon in that list is the sword of the spirit, which is the Bible, the word of God. Brian Broderson, who is the president of the Calvary Global Network said, Satan has successfully defeated much of the church 
by knocking the sword from the church's hand. The Bible, reading the Bible, knowing the Bible and using the Bible, these are important for us. Jesus knew and Jesus used the Bible. In chapter 4 we'll see some of this. But I pointed out as we go through his life story where it happens. He's a great example for us. He went ahead of us and he laid the groundwork. We see in chapter 4 he showed us the effectiveness of using the word of God against the power of Satan. But we'll also see his effectiveness of the God, word of God in seeing people who claim to be of God but who aren't as well. We should test everything we hear people say when they say God is saying something, using the word of God as the basis to judge those things by. I want to skip to verse 9 and then we look at verse 8. In verse 7, John the Baptist had called the Pharisees and Sadducees the brood of vipers or members of the family of the devil. The Jews and especially the religious leaders would have seen themselves in a different lineage. They would have said they are sons of Abraham. That's not too dissimilar from the way many Irish people believe that they're okay with God because of their family background or even the fact that they were brought up ticking a few boxes in the church. They believe they're okay with God because their parents went to church or mass because they had been christened, they made their communion and confirmation so they're fine. That's what the Jews thought. They thought because they were Jewish, because they were born into Abraham's family, that they're okay. They spoke of being a descendant of Abraham as if it was the golden ticket. You got right into God's good books for, just for being from Israel. And John in verses 9 and 10 is saying that that's not the case. He first points out that if God felt like it, he could raise up children for Abraham from the rocks that were around them. In other words, there's nothing special about them just because they're descended from Abraham. They didn't have a special pass for heaven because of their nationality. And the same is true today. Just because you might have ticked the church's boxes or just because you have family who are Christians doesn't make you automatically okay with God. In fact, God could make people that met those criteria from the fibres of the carpet in this room. We need Christ. We need to repent and believe in him for our salvation, turning from our sin, relying on his death, grasping his mercy and grace and love for us. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get. That's what many people today don't get as well. In verse 10, John's words are even stronger. The axe is coming to the tree. In fact, it is even now come to the tree. The call to repentance for the Pharisees and Sadducees was not something that they could put on the back burner. The tree was already being cut down. And the tree could be symbolic of the old religious system in Israel being replaced by the Messiah coming in the new covenant. And it's symbolic as well of individual people who just reject the Lord. And so just as it's true in Jesus's day, so it's true in our day. People cannot put off the need to come to Christ. The tree has already been cut down. The axe has come to it. And look what happens to that tree. The tree which isn't bearing fruit, the tree that believes we come to God based on our own merit, the good works we do, the things we have done like being baptized, doing our first communion, etc. That tree ends up in the fire. Because how do we bear fruit for Christ? That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of the Christian. We don't produce it. We abide or we stay in Christ, stay humbly dependent on him, and he produces fruit in us himself. So let's go back to verse 8. John says this to the Pharisees. 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They were religious leaders. There was a relationship with God, a standard, fruit-bearing and keeping with repentance that was expected of them. And John couldn't see it. And we'll see later that Jesus couldn't see it either. There are many people that say they have repented. And John would say, let's see the fruit of that change. So when we see change, we don't doubt the repentance. But since repentance should bring change, and even means change, if there is no change, we are caused to doubt that repentance. If you were in Mallow Street about a month ago, you'll have heard me say already that I don't believe this verse should ever be used as a weapon against another Christian. As the pastor of this church, that's one of those things that I'm not going to go easy on you over. This doesn't mean that we'll all live in an anything-goes sort of relationship. On our first week, I said that we're going to be a community characterized by the grace of God toward one another. Using this as a weapon, using this as grounds to say to another member of the church that they are not a Christian because they're in a season of drought and so their fruit isn't coming out well at the time, that's not acceptable. Sure, there will be times where we're going to have to have conversations about those periods, but we are not going to be stabbing one another with the word of God. The Bible teaches us what is true, shows us when we are wrong, corrects us, and teaches us the right thing to do instead. It doesn't allow us to go around stabbing one another. If there is that sort of carry-on in this church, that's really going to try my gracience. That's patience and graciousness. So just do us all a favour and don't go there. But when John is calling out the religious leaders, pointing out that they call themselves, say that, them, that they are okay with God, that they're sons of Abraham, but there's little in their character, little in their actions, little in the way that they carry themselves, their walks, to suggest that this is actually the case. For each of us personally, this should encourage us to be people who walk by the Spirit, as Paul talks about. We should desire to know the will of God, to search the scriptures, to learn from him about what sort of behavior is in keeping with our new identity in Christ. And we should pursue those things, not in our own strength or by our own willpower, but in humble dependence on the power of God working in and through our lives by the Holy Spirit. We have two more verses to touch on today, verses 11 and 12. So let's read them again. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John baptized. This wasn't a foreign practice. It isn't something Christians made up. Non-Jews were baptized if they joined the Jewish religion. The shocker here is that John is baptizing Jewish people. The baptism that Jews did, that, sorry, that John did, looked forward to the baptism that we now have in Christ. And we'll talk more about that in October when we see Jesus being baptized. In these two verses, John the Baptist is talking about Jesus. You can tell he says, he was coming after me. That's a messianic way of speaking, indicating the coming of the Messiah. He is the one who John wouldn't be worthy to carry the sandals of. That's a strong word. Sometimes because of our familiarity with the gospel and with Jesus, we forget how awesome he is. 
and I don't mean that in the bland American way of saying awesome, but the powerful, awe-inspiring type of awesome. We're not worthy to carry his sandals. That's the truth of it. Yet he calls us brothers and sisters. He died for us. We serve an amazing God. When we read the Bible, let's not try, let's try not to get lost in the familiarity we have with it. But let's look at what God does, what Jesus has done for us, and let's allow ourselves to feel the amazement that God would choose us. Small, sinful, rebellious me. Small, sinful, rebellious you. And that's not to make you feel bad. That's just a fact. That's to make you think again how amazing God is and to reignite that gratefulness in you for his goodness, mercy, love, and grace toward you. John talks about the two baptisms of Jesus. The baptism that John did was a water baptism, and it was merely a symbol. But the baptisms that come with Jesus, they are greater. The two are of the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is greater because he brings the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the coming of the Holy Spirit of God into the life of the believer when they repent and turn to God, when we trust in him and his love, mercy, and grace for us. And just while we're on it, this baptism with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean a coming of the Spirit in a certain way that allows you to speak in different languages. That does happen in the Bible. That does happen today. But the baptism of the Spirit spoken about here in this passage is an essential baptism. All believers should be and are baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you understand that to mean speaking in tongues, you're missing what it means and you're putting unnecessary pressure on yourself to access a gift of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit may decide not to give you as he wills. But now there is a coming of the Holy Spirit in power as well, which can happen the same time as this baptism of the Spirit, or it can be a different time. In Greek, when people talk about the Holy Spirit's interactions with us, there's three different words. And they each tell us something about how the Holy Spirit relates to us. The first, I'm not going to give you the Greek, I'll just give you the English, is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. And that's before we are believers. He's still active in our lives. He's working to convict us, to help us see our sin, um, and various other things. The second is in us. That is when we are Christians and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our lives. That's what John the Baptist is talking about here. And then the Holy Spirit can come upon us in power. The other baptism is the baptism of fire. If you don't know Jesus, you'll certainly get this baptism. It's God's judgment, separation from God. As Christians, we experience the purifying fire of God, but not the judgment fire. And we don't want to experience the judgment fire of God, and we won't, thank God. The winnowing fork is something that was used to separate wheat, the good edible part of the crop, from the bit that you couldn't eat. And that's what Jesus will do when he comes in judgment of the second coming. He'll separate the wheat or the believers from that bit that's not edible, the unbelievers, those who are still in their sin. And the wheat is gathered up into the barn or taken up into heaven. And the chaff that's left, that's burned up, which is a picture of hell. That's John the Baptist's message. And it's essentially the gospel. Those who believe, they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives. We are wheat. Christian, you are the wheat. Those who don't believe, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, and many today, they're the chaff. 
they experience the baptism of fire in the way that believers will never. The kingdom of God is at hand. People need to prepare for it and be ready for it. For us as Christians, we can see what Jesus has done for us. And we can be grateful for his goodness and thankful for his mercy. And we can rely on his grace to produce the fruit of repentance in our lives. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace for us. We thank you for John the Baptist coming and preparing the way and, he, and just even giving this gospel message to repent, to confess our sins, and to trust in you, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for who you are and for all you've done for us. Lord, we pray that when we read scripture this week, we won't be bogged down by the familiarity of it, Lord, but we'd be able to see with fresh eyes what you have done for us and how you have saved us and how you have all of these blessings that we were reading about in Ephesians chapter 2 for us as well earlier, Lord. Lord, I pray this week we would abide with you, allow grace to do its work in us and the Holy Spirit to come in power and produce the fruit of, of the Spirit in our lives, Lord. Lord, may we see increases of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control this week as we allow you to work in and through us. Lord, I just thank you for who you are and for your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen.